By faith, Abraham was enabled to become a father, even though Sarah herself was sterile and past the normal age of childbearing, because he considered the one who had made the promise faithful. And so it was that from this one man, and he already impotent, there were born descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the grains of sand on the seashore. Now, by way of introduction, I need to give you a word about this translation. Why am I giving you a translation of these verses rather than reading them out of the ESV? Well, because almost any commentary you will read will tell you that these two verses are the hardest two verses in Hebrews to translate and to understand properly. And I'm simply, after my study, not convinced that the ESV gets it correct. The ESV and many other translations read something like this. They open this way. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Sarah received power to conceive. Even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So here, Sarah is the exemplar of faith. In other translations, Abraham is the exemplar. Now you say, surely, Pastor, this can't be that difficult. I mean, the word Sarah doesn't look anything like the word Abraham. I don't know Greek, but really, you, you can't tell the difference between who it's talking about? So let me explain the problem. Actually, there are multiple challenges in these verses. But the main one is the question of who is the subject of verse 11. Should the verse be understood as, by faith, Sarah was enabled to conceive, or by faith, Abraham was enabled to become a father? Now, in the Greek, the name Sarah is there, and it's also early in the verse, although word position in Greek doesn't really mean anything. All right? The name Abraham is not in verse 11, but of course, he's just been discussed in the previous verses, and verse 12 is all about Abraham. It uses masculine pronouns. It cannot be referring in verse 12 to Sarah. It has to be talking about Abraham. But given the fact that Sarah's name is, is there, many translators attach her name to the main verbal clause. This phrase um, that the ESV reads, received power to conceive. But as many scholars have pointed out, this phrase never, never, refers to a female's ability to conceive. Instead, it is a rather plain, even graphic description of the male's contribution to conception. Trust me, every translation uh, puts it very mildly and cleanly. Biologically, Sarah could not do what this phrase says. Anatomically, it was impossible for her. Only Abraham could. 
So even though the name Abraham is implied and not overtly written, many other translators, myself included, make Abraham the subject of the sentence. That doesn't mean Sarah's unimportant here. I, I hope to convince you otherwise, only to help you understand why one of you might be reading Sarah in the verse and someone sitting right next to you in an otherwise good English translation, it says Abraham. What? How does that, how could that be? I hope you understand now some of what uh, translators and preachers uh, have to wrestle with. Further support for this idea of translating Abraham there is found in the fact that in Genesis and in Romans, Abraham is the main exemplar of faith, especially when it comes to this matter of Isaac. But Sarah is included in verse 11. Why would that be, you might ask? Well, of course, first, Abraham needed Sarah to produce Isaac. No surprise there. God's design requires a man and a woman, a male and a female, to produce children. And more specifically, Abraham's heir was promised through Sarah. It had to come from Abraham through Sarah. It could not come from any other man or any other woman. Sarah had an essential part to play in all of this, and not just biological. Sarah is included here because she, along with Abraham, had saving faith. She, too, believed. Now, of course, she is usually remembered for what? Her, her laugh, right, her initial unbelief. The angels, God, come and they visit Abraham, who immediately recognizes who it is. Sarah knows there are visitors, and she stands at the door of the tent. She hears what's said. And so when the promise comes about a son, not, not one of his servants, not Ishmael, but a promise of a son from dead Abraham through dead Sarah, she laughs. And it's clear, because of God's response to her laugh, that this is not a laugh of joy. When Abraham was first told, he laughed as well. He's not rebuked. Sarah is rebuked by God because this is a laugh of unbelief. How can I still give my husband a child? How could I know this pleasure, she says. This is a laugh of unbelief. So we typically remember that about her and not what follows. But you see, the rest of Scripture tells us clearly that Sarah repented of this unbelief and trusted God's promise. Think about Galatians chapter 4. Who is the epitome of faith as opposed to the one who would try to be right with God through their own works? You might say Abraham, but actually the example given there is Sarah. It's Sarah. She had to have been a woman of faith for that to have been said about her. In 1 Peter 3, both holiness and hope characterize Sarah. 
Now, those two graces only inhabit the hearts of those with saving faith. Sarah had saving faith. Therefore, she had righteousness and she had hope. Finally, in Isaiah 51.2, we have this call from God. Listen to me, he says to Israel. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and he doesn't end there, and to Sarah who bore you. This verse is not a call for the people of Israel to remember a purely physical ancestry. This is a call to remember their spiritual heritage. This is about righteousness and faith in seeking God. They were to look back not only to Abraham as their father in the faith, they were to look to Sarah as their mother in the faith. And so while I believe, for various reasons, a few of which I've given you, that Abraham ought to be the subject of verse 11 to make sense of that verbal clause in particular, it is both Abraham and Sarah who are exemplars of faith in these verses. They were both given the promise and both <coughs> believed. Now that leads me to make a note of what I've called assurance. <laughs> I, I, I want to assure you, um, because any time there are uncertainties like this in, in the Word of God, um, well, there are often at least one or two say, Pastor, this, this worries me that the, that the Word of God, you know, that I can't really depend on it. How, how would I know this? Well, part of how you would know this is various translations of the Bible and having a pastor and having each other, doing a little bit of study. And, but this, there's, there's nothing in this that upsets or overthrows any biblical doctrine. Amen. This is just a factual matter that we're trying to be honest with so that we can best present what the verse says for your soul's health. All right? If we were to say, oh, well, I think it's Sarah instead of Abraham, or someone else were to say, well, I think it's Abraham and it doesn't include Sarah, and, or, as I believe, it's both of them. There's no undermining of scriptural truth with any of those positions. And as several of the men that I studied with this week reminded me, this verse is a good reminder that faith and salvation are proper to women. Okay. Eve didn't sin in such a way as to exclude forever from salvation those of her sex. Sarah didn't sin by laughing in such a way that forever damned her. According to Galatians 3.28, there is in Christ no male or female. Women can be as safe in Christ as men. 
and most of us men would say, it seems to me they're safer. <laughs> this chapter is populated by men and women of saving faith. And so if you're a female here this morning and not a Christian, please know that if you will repent like Sarah and believe like Sarah, you will be saved. Righteousness and hope in God will be yours. But as William Perkins, the famous Puritan preacher of the late 1500s said, many follow Sarah's fault, few her repentance. So to the women here I say, if you would be saved from the judgment of God, you must repent of your sin. You must repent of your derision in, of the word of God. And you must believe the gospel. Now let me finish this long introduction by just reminding you that this is still about saving faith. All of the faith described in this chapter, including here Abraham and Sarah, is saving faith, not a lesser faith. Now let's quickly look at um, what this involves in verses 11 and 12. First of all, we see that faith has a promise. Let's look at faith's promise. The promise is alluded to at the end of verse 11. By faith, Abraham considered the one who had made the promise faithful. Well, what promise? <laughs> the promise given repeatedly to Abraham and to Sarah that they would have a son from whom would come descendants so many they couldn't be counted. This is found numerous times in various forms from Genesis 12 through Genesis 21. God himself made this promise. And so it was in this expectation that Abraham placed his trust. This is again a good reminder of what I have told you repeatedly in previous weeks. Faith is always in something outside of itself. Faith is always in or on something outside of itself. Faith always leans on another. Faith does not get its power or assurance from itself, but always from whatever it is grasping. You know, Abraham firmly held on to God's promise of a son. He did not doubt, the scriptures say. Sarah leaned on God's word to be made true. And their faith wasn't in faith. It wasn't in their own willpower at all. Why, they laughed at this idea that they had the power to produce a child, right? They didn't believe, like some modern hucksters, that if you name something in faith, you have the power to make it come into existence. What nonsense. People who teach such things want to sit on God's throne and they want you to join them and I urge you, do not join them in their idolatry. The scriptures know nothing of a faith that projects our own agendas or goals or desires and then by its own inherent power brings them to pass. 
Only God can do such things. And Abraham's faith rested solely in the promise of God. And so should ours. Faith is an empty hand. It has no strength of itself. It has no content of itself. So don't listen to people who tell you that your cancer will go away or your child would be saved if you just had enough faith or you had the right kind of faith. Oh, as a pastor, I just abominate that kind of wicked telling to God's people that harms them. It does not strengthen them. That's wolf-like behavior. No, saving faith looks to the promises of God for the content and the power of its belief. More of this later. Saving faith has a promise. It also has obstacles. Saving faith has obstacles. There were many rather obvious obstacles to the promise being fulfilled in this story, right? Abraham's, he's got obstacles. He's about 99 or 100 years old. And verse 12, verse 12 of our passage tells us that Abraham was impotent. Literally, it says he was dead. That doesn't mean, of course, in the full sense. He wasn't in the grave. It does mean in the reproductive sense. Now, it's often translated he was as dead or as good as dead. And, and that's okay, I suppose. But just understand, it doesn't say that. It literally says in the Greek, Abraham dead. Right? So this is a man who is impotent. He, he can't contribute what he needs to by himself for a child to be born. The exact same language used here is said of him in Romans 4.19. Remember, again, when the promise came, both he and his wife had a really good chuckle, in part because they knew Abraham's weakness. And Sarah had them also, of course. She had always been sterile. She had never been fertile. Romans calls her barren, but now by 90 years of age, she is also postmenopausal. She was, as our verse says it euphemistically, she was past the age of childbearing. All right? Her womb was, in a sense, twice dead, sterile, and it was too late. And of course, then there's the initial obstacle of her unbelief. <laughs> So when God made good his promise, it had to overcome all of these obstacles in Abraham and in Sarah. But notice third from our text that where there are obstacles to God's promises, there are also faith's miracles. Point number three, faith has miracles. Why? Why? Because when faith is rightly placed in God's promises, the full commitment and power of God are engaged. It's not faith by itself that works the impossible, but the God who grants faith and fills it with his promises that produces the miraculous. 
So we read this in Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son. Oh, such simple language that show the miraculous going on. Our verses in Hebrews tell us that God did the same for Abraham. It says he was enabled to become a father. He was unable before. Now he is enabled. So the miracle of reproductive life returned to Abraham and came for the first time to Sarah. And so Isaac, the promised son, he who laughs, that's what Isaac means, right? He laughs and causes others to laugh with rejoicing, that boy is miraculously born. Now, this is not a virgin birth. Right? Every once in a while, you'll, you'll meet someone who thinks that this was a virgin birth. That, of course, is, is not what Scripture teaches in the verses we've read. Um, and in a very real sense, Isaac is not the miracle. He's really the product of two miracles. You know, the miracles in Abraham and the miracles in uh, Sarah. And that produces a very ordinary child. He was a sinner who needed Christ. He was human. He wasn't human and divine. He was Isaac. He was the one who brought laughter into their family. The impossible work was done in Abraham and Sarah's bodies. When they came together, a little boy was conceived, and this conception apparently went full term, and he was delivered safely. And all of that work surely must have seemed a wonder to Sarah in particular. That's faith's miracle. What about faith's ground? When we say that faith has miracles, we don't mean that men have that ability in themselves or even that their faith automatically has that capability. When we say faith does miracles, or faith changes things, or faith can move mountains, we're again using the language of means. We talked about this a few uh, weeks ago. The language of means. Faith is the instrument, it's the method, it's the means that God uses to accomplish things. But God is the mover. God is the doer. God is the power in the promises. Faith isn't the doer, the power, the mover. God is those things in the faith, through the faith, and in us. And so faith's ground, faith's reason, must be God himself. And Abraham and Sarah model that for us right here in our text. See the end of verse 11. He, or... Sometimes it's translated he, sometimes she, it could be they. All that's absent in in the Greek. So we don't know what it is. So I'm going to say they, all right? They considered the one who made the promise faithful. Faith's ground is ultimately God. The God who is both able and willing 
to do what he promised. Faith depends on God's faithfulness. This is in part why we do things like study the attributes of God. Besides awing us with his majesty, they assure us that the ground of our faith is dependable. This God can be counted on. We lean by faith on a God who is faithful, trustworthy, in fact, incapable of deceiving us, and whose power guarantees all that all he says will come to pass. So the basis of our faith is, once again, not our faith. It's not ourselves. It's not even ultimately in God's promise, but in the character of the God who promises. Brethren, the better you know God as he really is, the more comfort and assurance will fill your life. This is why some of you really struggle with anxiety. Not all of you, and there may be other causes for this. But if you are one who worries, if you are frantic and frenetic, if you are anxious, perhaps part of the reason, and I say this gently because I care for you, perhaps part of the reason is you don't know our God well enough. The more you know God, the better you know God, the more peace and comfort, assurance and help will fill your life. Finally, let's look at faith's results. Faith's results. Now, these are several, of course. First and most obviously, Isaac was born. But he was really only the beginning of the promise. For secondly, the promise of an unaccountably large number of physical descendants was also fulfilled. And if we study the Old Testament, it says numerous times, that Israel attained this, that God made good on this promise. It's even more true today, I suppose. But a third result, not mentioned in our text, but elsewhere in Scripture, was also affected. And that is the birth of Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3, we are taught that Christ is the ultimate reference for this promise. Abraham and Sarah are promised a seed. Is that Isaac? Yes. Paul says, "Mm, yeah, but really it's Jesus Christ. It's one, it's singular, it's not plural, and the ultimate fulfillment is Jesus Christ. Isaac's a type of him, he's a picture of him. And while Isaac is a true historical fulfillment of the promise, so is Jesus Christ. He is the offspring or seed of Abraham. Isaac and then many, many Israelites fulfilled the promise in part, but they were also the line by which this ultimate seed, Jesus Christ, would come. And of course... There's a fourth result. Bless God, it includes us. There is a people that came as a result of Abraham's 
faith in this promise. That is all those who are in Christ. All of those whom Galatians 3, 7 calls the sons of Abraham by faith. So what is the effect of faith in the promise? It's nothing less than the salvation of the world. That's what's promised here. Is Isaac promised? Oh, yes. Is Israel promised? Oh, yes. Is Christ promised? Oh, yes, preeminently, and all in him. This is a promise for the salvation of men from every nation, tongue, tribe, time. Well, that brings us to our uses, and I have four uh, short ones. First, recognize this, that with God through faith, great things may come from little beginnings, and bad beginnings may have good endings. Let me say that again. With God through faith, great things may come from little beginnings, and bad beginnings may have good endings. Faith is the instrument by which we hold on to God's promises. Faith is the clamp that grips the word of God. And so when we believe, we benefit from them. This, mean, this means that no matter how small or insignificant we are, God can work great things from us and our spiritual children who follow us. There are some wonderful illustrations of this from Baptist history. Let me give you two quickly. Think of the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. Here's a man raised by godly, independent father and grandfather. By the age of 14, well, he had lived with his grandfather for most of his childhood, and so was his gift from God that by the time he was 14, he wasn't saved yet, he'd actually read his grandfather's Puritan library. So he had some of the best teachers in the English language. One day he's going to church and there's a snowstorm and so he, he can't make it to where he's going. He stops off into a little, I think it was a Methodist chapel and there's a few people there and there's a man standing up in front leading the service who can barely read and, and couldn't talk. I mean, he was just, he was terrible as a public speaker, Spurgeon says. But he called out for those who are lost to be saved and it was through that weak beginning through that small thing that God enlightened Charles Spurgeon. Well, Spurgeon led thousands to the Lord. So think about this man who, who Spurgeon could never find out who he was. He could never figure out his name. He could never trace him. But think of all the spiritual grandchildren that man has. I mean, a really insignificant man. He is rich in spiritual blessings. Think about William Carey. Here's a poor shoe cobbler. He's got a, a longing for the world. He wants to see it, and he wants to see it so he can preach Christ. And he's uneducated because he's a Baptist. He's a dissenter. He can't, he's not allowed to go to college. Even if he was allowed, he didn't have the money. So he's sitting there one day cobbling, repairing shoes. And his fellow cobbler is a, is a Christian, a like-minded Christian. 
And as, as Carrie pours out his heart to him, the man says, well, if you can't do as you wish, do as you can. That's great advice. If you can't do as you wish, do as you can. And so what does Carrie do? Carrie begins to do what he calls plod. Take one little step in front of another little step in front of another little step. And here's this nobody English cobbler in the middle of England who ends up being what? The, the father of modern missions in many respects. It's following his example that thousands of people have left their homes to go tell the world about Jesus Christ. With God, through faith, great things may come from little beginnings. And bad beginnings may have good endings. Sarah teaches us that bad beginnings can have good endings. Your sinful heart, your bad choices, they don't disqualify you from a good ending with God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your sins on him and take his perfect righteousness to yourself and you will have a good ending. Oh, when did... When did English words perform so poorly? A good ending? A good ending. Life with God. New heavens and new earth. Reigning over the universe. Good ending? Your mind cannot conceive of what God is going to do for you according to his promise through faith if you will believe. Second lesson, all the power in faith is from God. We keep saying this, but this is so important. I just want to say it again. All the power in faith is from God. Faith isn't occupied with itself much. Faith is not into navel gazing. It's into God gazing. It's into looking away from itself and looking to Jesus Christ, looking to, looking to our God for the help that's needed. It looks to his word. It doesn't focus on itself. It doesn't praise itself. It doesn't glory in how strong I am. It depends on God, and it looks to him for both promise and power. That's what faith does. It looks to God, looks in his word, and it says, where's the promise? Now, God, give me the power. That, that's it. Thirdly, be reminded from this text that God, the God who promised, is faithful. The God who promised is faithful. It is the unchanging character of our God that he is faithful to his word, period. No buts, no exceptions. The character of our God guarantees that he is faithful to his word. God is the only being who actually has the ability to make good what he promises. You know, you and I can make a promise and we can be sincere, but we do not within ourselves have the ability to make it good. God does. God does. And he combines it with a carefulness to do as he has said. In other words, God is not only strong, he is true. 
First Thessalonians 5.24 bluntly says it this way. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Yeah, there it is. Again, no buts, no exceptions, no. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. His power and his willingness never fail. And so whatever he has promised will be fulfilled for you. And if you know that, you will know great peace. Fourth and finally, here's your homework. Here's my homework. Let's go away from this lesson rehearsing God's promises to us. God didn't make covenant with us, with individual men here in the room, to enliven us and our wives so that we would have children. That, that's not the covenant we're under. We're under what's called a better covenant. We're under the new covenant. We have a different set of promises. Now, they're not unrelated to the Abrahamic promises, but they're so much plainer, they're so much bigger, they're so much better. Let me list a few. Uh, these are from William Perkins again, and then I'm going to add to his, and you go home and add your own list of favorite promises of the new covenant. We have the promise of salvation. John 3.16, whoever believes in Christ will not perish but have eternal life. We have the promise of resurrection. They that sleep in the dust will rise again, Daniel 12.2 and 1 Corinthians, multiple chapters. We've been promised glorification. The Lord Jesus will change our lowly bodies and make them like to his own glorious body, Philippians 3.21. We've been promised a new world. We look for new heavens and a new earth according to his promise. 2 Peter 3.13. How about the very useful, I will never leave you or forsake you. Oh, brothers, wear it out. Wear it out. Believe it because God is faithful. He's trustworthy. He's true. Or God gives grace to the humble. On and on we could go. You should go on and on with these, right? All of these are impossible for us. Like Abraham and Sarah, if left to ourselves, none of these things would happen. But the faithful God who is strong and true overcomes these obstacles and blesses us with the fulfillments of his promises.